When it comes to ultra running, the guest for this episode, Hazel Moller, has done it all. Multiple 100 milers, 17 comrades medal finishes, and what she is best known for is 10 comrades in 10 consecutive days. Hazel was also happy to share her journey of running deep into her pregnancy with her first child and then going on to complete comrades seven weeks post-birth. In this episode, we go back to where it all started, where she is at today, and she shares an exclusive bit of information for next year on the episode as well. If you wish to donate to Hazel Charities, visit www.1010.co.za or follow on Facebook at 10 Comrades. Thank you to everybody who left a review on iTunes and also sent them through to me. I really appreciate it and endeavour to keep bringing you some great content. Good to see people joining the Strava Club. If you haven't already, please feel free. And also feel free to follow on social media at Stimulate Health and iSwinny88. So here goes, enjoy the episode with Hazel Moller. International guest, international guest of some quite esteem in my eyes of what she's achieved and welcome to the podcast, Hazel Moller. Hi there, Owen. Nice to meet you via the phone. Via the phone. Well, we finally got around to having a chat. You've, you've had some issues with your Wi-Fi connection going through the Johannesburg storm, so um the, the master of technology has finally linked us together yes yeah it's about time it's been a mission <laughs> so hazel for the listeners who don't know you do you want to introduce yourself okay um well i started running in my 20s um i didn't run a meter prior to that i was totally unathletic at school um i was a nerd um, I studied all the time. Uh, very, I think it's the personality type of a lot of runners. Uh, very a personality, achieve, achieve, achieve. So academically, yeah, um, that was my focus until I finished varsity. Um, I studied engineering, so I'm a chemical engineer, which I'm pretty chuffed about because it gives me a good base to work and run. <laughs> You know, having that degree certainly helps. Um, but, yeah, so that was my focus. And then in my 20s, um, the seriousness of life, I must be honest, um, started to play with my self-worth. And I started doing aerobics and spinning and stuff like that. I'd actually moved from Durban to Johannesburg. My family are all still in Durban. I was this little fish in a huge sea. And my running club, Bedford View Athletics, kind of the guys saw me running alone and said, come and join us. So that was the start of my running career. Um, I ran my first marathon. The stupidity of it actually astounds me that I got roped into this. But I basically ran a 15K. Two weeks later, I ran a 32, which is renowned in Johannesburg. It's called the tough one (laughs) Mm -hmm. because of the climbs and the difficulty. Um, I was so petrified that I ran so hard that I walked the last 5Ks, but I still went under three hours. And for two weeks after that, I could barely sit. Every time I went into a squat position, I was in absolute agony. So, <laughs> And then two weeks after that, I ran my very first marathon, which was the Sowetan um, Marathon. Okay. And every year there's been a Sowetan, I've gone back and done it. Um, this is, was my 21st this year. Um, which was so cool, you know, you kind of realize 
okay, it's not a huge thing to do 21 Soweto marathons. It just means you're getting old. (laughs) So from there, that was 97. I ran my first, well, I trained for my first comrades in 98. Um, Didn't get to the start line because I was was sick. Um, And that's, you know, in terms of in South Africa, you and South African running clubs, you aren't a runner until you've run comrades. It's actually very sad. <laughs> Everybody is into the whole comrades thing, and we train extremely hard for six months. Um, but in that, I have found uh, an incredible, well, I did find an incredible kinship, for want of a better word, with other people, because you all focused on the same goal, and you, you all suffer together and that is the beauty of running it doesn't matter how experienced you are uh, you can suffer on a 10k you might I mean I've run 2700 milers and I can go and suffer on a 10k that's just the beauty of the sport um so yeah that was the start of it in 2001 I met my husband running uh, he says I picked him up. I don't buy it myself. I, I was sure he picked me up. <laughs> and he was with a group of um, Impangeni runners. And I was questioning something hanging on his, his chain around his neck because it looked very odd. And he ignored me flat um, for many kilometers on this, uh, the Bergville Ladysmith race. And eventually I said, Mr. Rhino, because he had a rhino on his vest, what's that hanging from your chain? And he said, no, it's the emergency pin for my parachute because he's a scout. So three months later, we were married. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was 18 years ago, 18 and a half years ago. So um, I have running to thank for that. And I must admit, I was, I was very fragile um, in terms of confidence when it came to practically anything. But when I met my husband, he is... I'm a, I mean, I'm a typical engineer in terms of being safe, and I like things orderly and predictable. The first unpredictable thing I did was marry my husband <laughs> because my family were shocked. So, and then after that, um, he, I must give him credit for the fact that he is the one that has motivated me, that has so much belief in me, and has taught me to just sees life and suck the juice out of it he is one of those people he just he we would wake up in the morning and say oh there's a 56 tomorrow in Nelspruit let's go okay let's get in the cargo no plan nothing just do it so he really taught me a lot about trusting yourself um I ran my first 100 miler with him um that same year that we met and well, actually, I had I had done one before, but um, we won't talk about that because somewhere along the line, the count got wrong. So anyway, that's a different story for a different time. But he he encouraged me. I said, are you nuts? And well, 100 miles, how the hell are we going to do that? I didn't, I mean, I, I battled through comrades. He says, no, you can do it, you can do it, let's go do it. And his club had actually the previous year done a 100 miler. And I promise you, if I'd seen the video of how he suffered, before he entered us for my 100 miler, there is no ways I would have done it. The man was in agony. He was puking. He was doing everything. So um, we went into the first 100 miler. I left him at 100 k's, which took him 
at least six years to get over because, you know, and now he's just accepts, well, he's made for speed. I'm made for distance. <laughs> he's the racehorse. I'm the mule. So, um, yeah, so that was the, the beginning. And then from there for the next, I would say, let's see, 2010 or 12 years, I pretty much um, had my own running goals. And I, I accomplished, you know, I, I found the 100-miler distance was ideal for me. Um, I came into my own after like 110 Ks where everyone else was walking, I wanted to run. And it's not, uh, you know, it's just mindset, I think. And it also made me feel incredibly powerful with regard to my body, which is something I'd never had before in my life. So I embraced the 100 milers. And I, I mean, I, in 2000 and I think it was 2006, I stand corrected, um, I won the Midlands 100 miler outright. Okay, background, there was very few good men, male runners during <laughs> the race, but I won outright. And it was the first time in the world that a woman had won it outright. So, of course, the race organizer, I mean, this is good for his publicity. He made it huge. <laughs> so, that, and I, I won that. And then I, um, like, I won a few hundred milers over the years. And um, I, I still hold, okay, it's a very, it's a pathetic, actually, record for 24 hours in South Africa, <laughs> this 24 hour lady distance worldwide. It's, it's, it's actually a terrible, terrible record. It's like 192 kilometers in 24 hours, purely by accident. I wasn't going to go and break the record. Um, but I, I actually had planned to stop after 160 and then another fellow runner was truly battling. So I said, okay, I'll hobble along and make him keep going. So we did it. And then all of a sudden I'd, I'd beaten the record. So, yeah, it was um, – but, I'd, you know, I'd accomplished all these things. I'd got so much joy out of my running. And, I mean, I love running. I absolutely love it. You know, you give me a road and five hours spare, and the happiest place I am is just running through South Africa in the countryside because we've got an amazing country. We really do. and and enjoying myself being out there, you know, running for the pleasure as opposed for a goal. Um, I mean, my husband and I once, before the children were born, ran from Durban to the Drakensberg. And all we took was a camel pack, which I had to carry. He carried the backpack with a few clothes and credit cards. And we took four days and we just stopped wherever we felt like it. It was such an adventure. And it's memory I'll treasure forever. You know, so so that, so in about 2011, I thought, you know, um, I think it was just before my 40th birthday. There was a big, like, uh, uh, I suppose an awakening um, where I realized, you know, I've, I'm never going to run a marathon faster than I have my PB because I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm never going to. I don't enjoy running hard because, okay, the reason I, I didn't do much sport, and Erwin, I can talk forever, so interrupt me if you have any questions, yeah, please. No, this is great. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't do any sport at school, anything, not because of not wanting to, but I'm severely asthmatic. Okay. Um, I, was, I was born prem, like I was a 32 week in 1972, so they, that has some apparently that's that's the reason why but as a child up to my teens I was in and out of hospital 
with breathing problems and everything like that. And I, you know, it's always been a fear of mine to be mm-hmm. without air. So yeah. well, we got yeah. something in common because I was a severe asthmatic as a child and in and out oh, of hospital. So I know exactly what you what you're talking and, about. But you know, and I must be honest. Um, you know, it's not always easy to control asthma because the the atmosphere changes, you know, your mm-hmm. atmosphere composition changes. Any This time of the year, I, I normally don't sound this husky, by the way. This is not my usual voice. This is my asthma voice. Um, but at the moment, the air is still very dry up here. It's very polluted, so it triggers it. And I tend to, over the years, because I've had one or two very close calls in running, whilst running, I tend to shy away from speed work and anything which puts me anaerobic. It's purely Mm -hmm. a mental thing. It's it's just a mental hurdle. Um, But having said that, I don't enjoy it. And so I'm a, let me run and chat and smell the roses and meet people. That's what I enjoy. So anyway, just before my 40th around there, I was, you know, reassessing life and what it's all about. I'd accomplished pretty much far more than I ever expected in running. Um, I had a great degree that came with, uh, I mean, I'm no rocket scientist, but I worked my backside off for that degree. I had to. I had to get a bursary because my parents couldn't afford to pay for my varsity tuition. Um, mm-hmm. I'd met an incredible man. I have two beautiful girls and my stepson. Um, he was about, oh, 15 by then so a family a lovely family I just thought I actually am so blessed so so blessed to have so much so now what because you know you kind of question like and then obviously in South Africa specifically I saw how blessed I was and you know we went through a time especially in the early 2000s where every street corner in fact it's still this way but not as bad has a beggar or a um, a disabled person standing begging. Mm-hmm. And I would see this and think to myself, you know, how come I was born to the parents I was with my white skin so that, you know, I mean, I was a child of the apartheid era, effectively. Not that mm-hmm. I was aware of it, but because I was too young. You know, I, I'm 1994, I was at varsity, so... So I was still very young to be aware of the whole part. I think that came later. But in my 40s, I was questioning why. Why am I so blessed? What, what, like, why did God do this for me? And a lady said to me, I'll never forget at my daughter's nursery school, you are blessed, so pass your blessings on. And, you know, I thought about it and all that. And then, and I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not one to be, punt religion or anything, but I believe that there's a higher power. I don't care what you call him or her, or but the the universe, if you like, if you will, um, has a plan for us all. We are here. Um, we think that we're in control of our lives, but we're not. So whatever yeah. you call him or her or it, um. I just, I really believe that the big picture is out there. And all of a sudden, I promise you, it was uncanny. I would go running and find a dog. Running 
find a cat. Most of the time, either stray or injured or hurt or homeless, and I kept on coming like over a three-month period across these animals. And you know, I like, I mean, I grew up with dogs, but I wasn't a dog person. I mean, I thought is this a dog is just it's got no spine. You know, it loves you. You can do what you like to it. Where's a cat? Cat's a different story. <laughs> so I was a cat person. But then, you know, I kept it. And, and funny enough, when my daughter was, my firstborn was small, we got aboard a collie and I fell in love with my collie. Um, he's just amazing. And we had got another dog, a husky cross. So I started loving it and appreciating the beauty of, an, of a dog for the unconditional love it gives you and the company. So so by that stage in my life, I was very open to, to animals. And I just feel that I was directed in, in the direction of animals and the help they need. And slowly I got to find out things that I never knew before, like don't buy from pet shops, don't breed. I did all those things. I had no idea that it was detrimental. And then one day I was running and I found this, very close to our squatter camps, I found uh, this, This I think she's a pit bull cross Labrador cross Paven special, but um, she was wandering the streets and I saw her and then I didn't see her. And then two days later, I saw in, in this dilapidated yard, junkyard, tied to a car with no food, no water. I went in there and basically she had been abandoned and tied up. Um, she was exceptionally thin but she was pregnant so I phoned my husband and I said listen there's this dog he says of course he says we've got two dogs don't you bring that beep 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 dog home (laughs) like only he can do and I looked at this girl and she looked her eyes she looked into me and it was like no man I can't leave her so he said, phone the SPCA, phone the SPCA. By that stage, another lady had, and I said, Chris, if I phone the SPCA, they're going to euthanize her and the pups straight away because that's SPCA policy. They will euthanize to get rid of the puppies as well. I said, I can't. And he said, don't you dare bring that dog home. So anyway, so I put the dog in the car, <laughs> and I said to my daughters, Daddy's going to shout at Mommy about the dog. You cry, okay, just cry. So we got home. And he said, I didn't have to bring that effing dog home. And my daughter, no, daddy, please, no, daddy. Well, nine years later, that's his favorite dog. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and she, that she was like um, part of my journey, I think, finding her. She had pups. She had 10 um, eight survived. Every relative and friend I have has got one of her puppies all over South Africa. <laughs> so we rehomed them all, and that was the start. And then uh, a friend of mine from my running club is a very big animal activist, and she said, you know what? You've got a talent for distance. People want to have the wow factor. Use it. Use it to raise money for animals. And that's how I started. And I, um, my first long distance run was I did a um, hundred miler back to back so in other words the washi hundred miler which in South Africa is quite well known so we a friend of mine and I started at three on Thursday afternoon we had to be run the first hundred milers from East London to Port Alfred under 26 hours and then be at the start which started at five on the Friday to run it back 
with the actual race. So that's his definition, this mate of mine, his definition of a, a back-to-back is you have to run the first followed by the second within the two allocated times without any break in between. So 43 hours later, I'd run 322 Ks. It was the most painful thing of my life. I'd given up many times. And every time I gave up, I would see either Chris or my seconds drive past waving pictures of abused animals <laughs> in my face saying, this is why you're doing it. It was very tough, but um, yeah, it was a very, very tough thing. But what, 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 what came out of that is that, I think, sorry, that was 2013. And what came out of that is that we raised, look, 35,000 rand, which is nothing compared to the expenses that the animals go, well, the animal charities go through here. You know, just in vet bills and sterilizations, um, an animal shelter, then that, at that stage, my, my beneficiary was pets, which is pet empowerment in townships. Their vet bill was over 70,000 rand. So from that perspective, I hadn't even made a dent in, in, their, in their bill. And I got really, like, depressed about that, that we hadn't raised enough. Now, my club, there's a group of people from my running club who are also animal lovers, but also who encouraged me and helped me market and did all of that. And it's very much, I mean, it's a group effort, you know, to advertise and to to make people aware of what you're doing is tough. And I there's no ways I could have done it all myself. But then after this double washy, a group of us were sitting in, as many stories go, in a pub. <laughs> I don't I don't drink because the last time I drank, I met my husband and we got married, so I don't do that anymore. But they were all having beers. And this interior, I mean, this, um, yeah, interior, des- not interior, graphic designer, friend, and my husband were chatting. And next thing I hear them say, yeah, that's got an awesome ring to it, 1010. I can market that, this chap says, Gerald. He says, I can market that beautifully. I can design a website, a blog. He was making huge plans. So I said, what's this all about? He says, no, we thought we need to make your cause and um, and what you do more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, more um, other pe- for people, more understandable. What's, oh, I, can't, I can't think of the word, sorry. Um, to the more approachable, agreeable, whatever, to the average South African. So they're more relatable to the average South African. And, and this, what is how, every, this is how yeah. 1010 came about. So he said, what race does every South African know? Because the reality is Washi 100 Miler, a handful of runners know about or care yeah, about. Yeah. Yes, physically it was hell of a hard, but... My, but the monetary return, which was the right reason I was doing it for the animals, was very little. So mm-hmm. um, he said, right, comrades, we've got to incorporate comrades. And they, he said to me, you're going to run, <laughs> not ask me, 10 comrades in 10 days, your husband said you can do it. And I'm like, no, man, no ways. He's committed me again to something that he's not going to do, but he believes I can do. And that's Chris. <laughs> but mm-hmm. So we said, okay, 10 comrades, 10 days. I loved the sound of it. It was a fantastic ring to it. I didn't think about 
anything except that it sounded Ten comrades in ten days. So each day is approximately ninety kilometers, but it's got to be under twelve hours because that's the comrades' cutoff. Mm-hmm. So it's the and we would try and emulate the comrades' route profile as best we could. The team got. Oh wow! To so it wasn't even just the distance; it was no. you needed to do even the elevation as well. Yeah, we tried to look the first three days. Because what we did was we the group sat down and from there this just grew like wildfire and I sat back and thought, hell, now I've got to run this. <laughs> so um, the group of people, they decided, no, we are not going to do it. Look, you can't do it on the Comrades route because Comrades mm-hmm. route is highway sections and um, you would require special permission. There's a lot that we had to be careful of, like slightly – 1010's logo has got slight modifications mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that don't that aren't identical to the comrades one and stuff like that. So the guys thought, you know what? Because I, I've always wanted to run from Joburg to Durban. So they thought, no, let's let's do it from Joburg to Durban, but we'll take the long scenic route round of about 900 Ks in the day before, either in Durban or in Marisburg, depending whether it's an up or down run and then run the race. So the 10th day is comrades. Um, and, yeah, I sat back and watched all this, and we had the first well, the first year, not as much as, as exposure as we would have liked because people just think, what the hell? You know, it's um, – yeah. but I knew why I was doing it. And the more – in the background for me, the more planning that was done, the more the need to help the animals – was being mm-hmm. made of because the abuse, the the lack of vet facilities, and also the need to sterilize. Because here in South Africa, that's our biggest thing. We have to sterilize. There's just too many. The numbers of animals, of dogs and cats, and all animals really, domestic animals, is is prolific. You know that they, they um, and so all the shelters are full all time. Um, and yeah, it became more and more apparent and I met people and my knowledge grew during that time. So yeah, so the guys planned routes and it, it was amazing. The first year I got two other people running with me, two guys who were just like, yeah, let's go do this, you know? Um, and we had sponsored accommodation for most of the way. Um, you know, you will know from your South African connections that the Free State is an incredibly hospitable place. And we went through the Free State, and I promise you, they were just, the people were amazing um, in terms of letting us just look. It is the winter, middle of winter, so it's not exactly the heart of their tourist season, but, mm-hmm. but they would let us come sleep there. All we wanted was a place to sleep for the night and have a shower and the next day be off. And we, we got that sponsored, which was a big cost. Every other cost we cover ourselves because any money that comes in, I don't want it to be used as an operating cost. So at the beginning of 1010, I kind of say, all right, this is how much it's going to cost Chris and I. Yeah. Um, we afford it. And that's my and that's contrib- probably important also for the charity aspect because a lot of you know times people go, oh, how much of this money is actually going to the charity? And at least you can say, well, yeah. hang on, all the operating costs we're taking care of, 
And then whatever's yeah. raised is going directly. Yeah, we, we actually, I mean, last year we actually just gave people the option to deposit directly into the charity's vet bill or into the charity's account. So that it, we didn't even, you know, it's uh, from the perspective of integrity, I don't want to ever be questioned. Mm. You know, I, that's one thing I've learned about fundraising. You've got to keep that because once that's gone, you're not going to raise any money. Nobody will trust you. So, yeah, so from that perspective, and then we started. And, look, the first three days are relatively, it's not comrades profile, but it's, um, I would say up and down, but not like comrades. However, it is at altitude. So there's that factor. And also it's out in the lonely streets of, well, from Pretoria to Joburg to Vereniging, and then, then the hills start. Um, but the trip itself, you know, the run itself, the guys designed, well, Chris actually did the route, and he's he loves planning routes, and he wouldn't take me, you know, just through a main road. No, no, we go off-road, and we go, wherever it's, it's scenic and nice, he made it actually enjoyable, the routes, which, you know, after day three, you feel like hell, you don't want to run another step, but if you look out the window and there's a mountain, you think, oh, that's so nice, and we can run it, you know, <laughs> so that helps. Um, and, yeah, the first year I didn't finish on day six. And this is a very interesting story, actually. Day six, um, we were heading, I think it was Harry Smith. Yeah. And I had a massive asthma attack. And I – but the funny thing was the next day my stomach was incredibly – it was burning. So – and I, I, I was vomiting up a bit of blood, so we called it then. I went back three days later and ran comrades, probably one of my best comrades' times on the down run. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I did an eight and a half hour after all that. <laughs> so um, that was – so that the first year I did seven. Hilton Murray, who's one of the guys that ran with us, he carried on and actually did all ten. So now we knew this was doable. We mm-hmm. raised that probably double the first year, probably double – Plus that we did for the double washi, so about seventy thousand. And after that, I said not again, no ways. Everybody said no, you can't do it. Again. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Because I'd run a good comrades, but you know it's taken its toll, and it takes its toll on everybody. The seconds as well. I mean, throughout the day, an unusual day on ten ten is like this. Chris wakes me up. <laughs> Because he likes to be prepared and early. I leave everything for the last minute. My sleep is important to me. But he will wake me up. I'll dress. Paul Chris loads everything into the car. Make sure everything is ready for the day. Make sure I've had at least a cup of tea and I start running. My 30 Ks, look, he'll stop every 5 Ks and give me water and shout at me if he needs to. But by 30 Ks, he's on the side of the road with a little gas canister and he's made me a cup of tea, and I sit and have a biscuit or two. Um, in between, though, he is tweeting, he is Facebooking, he is any potential sponsors or donors he is communicating with. Like when we've had media coverage, he, uh, coverage, he has to have to coordinate all of that. So all of that is going on in the background. So he's working hard at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. In all the seconds, and we from the beginning – basically had to say, look, each runner needs a second, purely because after six, seven days, 
you are going to split up. There's no, your second cannot, at one second cannot help everybody because my running pace is I'm a steady, constant pace person. I want to finish in 10 and a half hours. So I've got recovery time. Whereas some of the other guys will, they'll finish in 11 and a half. That's their preference. Funny enough, that's been the most of the time. The guys run it slower in my average pace type of thing. Not that they can't mm-hmm. run it faster, but they try to conserve. So, so from that perspective, look, we have had, most of the time we stick vaguely together, but, you know, the, the runner and the second. Remember, there's only been like three people or two people running. So to have that extra person on the road from a safety perspective is also good. And also your runner, when you are at a point where you're so low that, you think, let this truck just run me over so I don't have to run another step. <laughs> yeah. You need your person, your strength, the person that, that believes you need that moral support. And for me, Chris gives me that. He gives me the moral support. He knows me so well. He knows when it's just in my head, you know, when mentally I'm too tired. And then he yells at me and screams at me and tells me, that there's dogs dying and I'm a suck it up and put my big girl panties on and run. <laughs> or, or physically, he, if he can see there's a problem, he will deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. And they have been years. So, so anyway, so we thought, no ways, I'm not doing this again. Then came <laughs> 2015, the beginning of 2015. Um, I nearly lost my husband. He had an incredibly bad skydiving accident. Um, he he hit a tree and he had an open book pelvic fracture and they never thought he would walk again. So for the first six months, um, we didn't know where everything was going to be and how he was going to be. But that man recovered and he seconded me on 1010. And I, I can tell you, one of the things that got me through all 10 that year, because that was the first year I completed all 10, was knowing how much pain he was in just from getting in and out of the car. So I would see his commitment and I would think, you can't give up now. You can't. But also at the, at the beginning of that year or the end of the previous year, because I'd said no more 1010 after that, you know, I thought, no, I can't do this. And I was, again, dogs get thrown in my path. I was running. I was not supposed to be running where I was running. I actually was supposed to be doing that same race, the tough one. And I woke up in the morning and I said to Chris, I don't feel like going. He said, well, don't. So I went and I've got like a 45, 50K route that I run through the hills. And I was running up a road at half to six in the morning. And I looked down and I saw this animal. And this was a, a pit bull that had been involved with fighting. He had been dumped on the side of the road, um, left to die, basically. He had, out, he had outlived his purpose. Um, he was covered in old scars, new scars, his front legs. He was infected. He was so, he, when I said, hey, boy, he didn't even lift his eyes. And I thought, I can't leave this dog suffering. Um, the vet's like six Ks away. I need to get help. So I got him a tin of bully beef, and he then looked up at me, and this look again was this, I am so grateful, thank you, look. So I gave it to him, and I went around the corner. And, I mean, this is very unusual for a street of people to be out at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But this street, we're having a meeting about some sort of road closure they were doing at 7 o'clock on the Sunday morning. And I said, please, guys, 
I need help. I just I did my usual, like, 50 people standing, and then I come running along saying, help me, please, you know, interrupt their whole meeting. And I said, please, this dog, can you help me, somebody? And a lady turned around and she said, don't worry. I work for Bedford View Veterinary Hospital. And I thought, what's the chances? She said, I will, my husband and I know pitbulls. We will take him now. I said, okay, thank you. Let me, I will contact you and pay for his, his um, treatment. Ended up, he became like a mascot for me. Um, I called him Robbie initially for Roberts Avenue, which is where I found him. Um, they discovered that he wasn't just a, a fight dog. He was probably more of a bait dog because somebody had, had um, sellotape, well, masking taped his mouth closed and his front legs, and that's what they do. But what came out of that, the good that came out of that, was that National SBCA now had proof that in that particular area, there's dog fighting rings. And the result was over a two-year period, they actually ended up infiltrating two of the, the big rings, which was good. But he survived. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Robbie Billy survived miraculously. Um, he And he ended up, um, after a long recovery period, um, at a place called Underdogs in Pretoria. And the lady that runs and owns Underdogs is an incredible human being. She has about 60 pit bulls that she walks every day on her own that she has rehabilitation because it's a specific center just for pit bulls that need rehabilitation and rehoming. So it, it is very, um, the location is in Pretoria and they do not let anybody know what it is because in South Africa, pit, bull, pit bulls get to be used for fighting. Um, and she, she, so she does amazing things. Billy ended up there and I realized, hang on, this lady, you know, it's not so much about helping a specific shelter. It's about helping the individuals who have the tenacity and the, con the, the conviction to help animals every single day. So if I can ease their worry about money or bills, I will. So that for me is what it's about. It's, it's not, you know, you cannot help every single individual animal, but you can help a charity that is being run by individuals to have a little bit less stress by donating. So I became involved with underdogs and they became one of my beneficiaries and also pets empowerment and townships. So the sterilization had to, you know, I still wanted to fund sterilizations because that's such a big thing. So those are my two major beneficiaries. Um, the work done at Underdogs is in, incredible. Um, you know, when you see, can see somebody who's, who's dedicated 30 years of their lives to understanding a breed like a pit bull, um, it's just, I admire it. The things she sees, that, I mean, I was there the one day when another dog, fight dog was brought in, in pieces and she dropped everything and she dealt with this animal. And I thought I couldn't do this on a daily basis. I'd end up flipping, putting a bullet through my head. I'd be so depressed to see this cruelty, you know, but they do it. And they, they, they these rescuers do it every day and they do it with love 
and they deal with it. And that, that's incredible. And, you know, it's a worldwide thing. Um, it's not just in South Africa. I know the UK dog fighting is horrific. Um, but it's not just even the dog fighting. It's the fact that these people, animal rescuers, will see most horrific cruelties that every day get up and do the same thing. And I couldn't. I, I, so I decided, okay, run to raise money and to help. That's what I can do. So 2015, 10-10, that's what we, it happened again, much to my absolute horror. And I got through all 10, and we raised about 100000 that year, which was fantastic. The more difficulties I had, the more drama, the more money people <laughs> gave. So, you know, I realized, like, if I lose a leg to a flippin' lion in the bush, they're going to give me hundreds <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, on our route, there's no lions. <laughs> but anyway, in, they, it was a good year, yes? Sorry. So in terms of the, I suppose, your body and your body holding up, so automatically people would go, okay, well, Comrades is the end goal of this 10 days. How yes. important was it for you that you got comrades done? Because the cynics would say, and I'm sure there were cynics who would be like, oh, well, if she doesn't finish comrades, it's because she smashed her body for nine days prior. So why didn't she just go and run comrades for charity? You know, so how, suppose, how much of a desire for you was it to really finish comrades every time that you went through with it? Well, you know, you say that, and I think that is the key. See, one thing I realized over, because we've run 10, 10, five years, or mm -hmm. five years. One thing I've realized is, like, just to go forward to 2016, I am um, on day four, um, I, I jumped off the road to avoid a car, and I tore the fascia on the side of my leg, and I couldn't carry on. Um, I also didn't run comrades that day. However, the other chap, Tumela Mokobani, who, who ran with me, he did carry on. He made it to day seven. As soon as he stopped, all interest in the event stopped. So that was our worst year fundraising-wise. So we realized that one of the keys is to keep us on the road. Make sure we are running. Um, somebody, if it's not me, then it must be another somebody on the road to, just to keep it going. That We have had numerous cynics saying you didn't cover the distance or whatever. So um, for two years, we wore, I wore a tracker. So people could see this is what she's doing in this time because people did not believe it. Then come Comrades Day, um, I think for me, the goal mentally is just get to Comrades. Once you're in Comrades, then, you can, then you've made it. The Comrades yeah. mentally for me is my goal. Mm -hmm. Then one piece, and look, I line up and I'm stuffed. <laughs> like everybody's like so rested and happy, and you want to say, just shut up, just shut up. Yeah. Bring your energy, take energy somewhere else. I'm not interested, but I know on comrades because I'm, I know that by 60 k's, everybody's stuffed. Mm -hmm. Every normal runner is stuffed. so it's just the degree of stuffedness to put it. And when we get to 60, we all and boat. And I know yeah. it's essential for the charity for me to finish comrades because that's what people want to see. Mm -hmm. 
money in. I was going to so say, in terms of on comrades one... day, sorry, I'll, you go. No, no, carry on. The on comrades day itself, do you almost, is you do the nine days knowing that, okay, once I get to comrades day, I now have 20,000 people around me. And, you know, this might sound a bit weird, but is that the easiest mental day for you? Even though physically you've got to do the distance, mentally you can almost, it's like uplifting knowing that you've got 20,000 where the nine days prior you only had two people running with you and, you know, a handful supporting. Um, yes and no. Uh, I would say, look, I get to comrades knowing that if, like, for example, the um, I think it was 2016, no, 2015, there were two or three days where I'd run like a nine and a half hour or 87. And people were saying, yeah, but she's run, she can't possibly have done that. It's too fast. And Chris doesn't want to put pressure on me, but he said, you know what? If you now go and run an 11-hour comrades, it's going to look dodgy. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so <laughs> saying like run. And for me, that's important. that was important. So my, I, all I knew is I had to stay focused for the first 50 or 60 Ks of comrades. So I don't, yes, the crowds around you help. And once you get going, and for me, that's like after 30 Ks, I can kind of say, okay, I've got this because I know how I'm feeling. You know, you by 30, you know, in comrades, it's going to be either a shocker day or it's going to be a good day. and once it's 30, then I can relax and draw the energy from the crowd. And, you know, there's some people that know what you've done and they're very encouraging. Um, and you see your club mates and they, they're very encouraging. So from 30 onwards, but before that, and I know this is going to sound terrible, but before that, or in fact, every year that I've finished 10-10 with all 10, come 15 to 20 Ks, I don't know why, but I cry. <laughs> it's like an emotional breakdown. You know, I, I'm used to distance. So uh, from day in, day out of those previous nine days, it's a not so much muscular soreness or anything like that. It's just total body fatigue. I want to just fall asleep. So that's the interesting part. And then what I've no- what I noticed is day, I get to 15 or 20 and I'm I'm so tired of fighting my body. If anybody says anything nice, I burst into tears, <laughs> which is not conducive to good running. Let me tell you, I've been picked up off the pavement by people saying, who died? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not crying. I am sobbing my eyes out. I actually, it's a quite a standing joke, but there's a friend from a, a rival club that she came past one day and said, Hazel, I'm so proud of you. You've done so well. And that was me. Finished. I just sat on the side of the road and sobbed. She said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I made you cry. But then I get that out of my system, and then I, I like, it's almost like a reset, and then I'll go. So, yes, then after 30, it becomes a fun day because I know I can do it. After 60, I, I, I know this is going to sound funny, but I have a fat jaw at conference <laughs> because yeah. I know I've suffered for nine days. I know what this feels like. It's an it's a an old familiar thing. Whereas the other runners are still worried about mm-hmm. their times, they're still worried about finishing. I know I've got this. So my whole mindset tends to change 
It's just something I've noticed like over the years. And then that last, oh, that feeling of relief when you see the stadium. All I can think is tomorrow I don't have to freaking get up and Do run. this again. <laughs> And so let's winding back to the tra- actual preparation for all of this now. Like, I, I know the for commerce training. I know you know what you need to do essentially, and how you plan and the numbers and everyone has their number that they think they should do. But yep. how on earth do you even start physically planning to train to do this? Um, yeah, Look, I- do you want to kind of give us an idea of that? And that one point I suppose to lead on to that I did see Hilton Murray once said that when he got to comrades he felt the fittest that he ever did physically so I suppose if you could put that all into one you know do you feel like you got fitter as it went on I don't think you get fitter I think one thing to remember is and you can you can um, relate to this is as an asthmatic when you get to sea level it's like a turbo boost Mm-hmm. It's so much air. So now I've been running. Okay, just to um, first I'll tell you the one one interesting fact was eventually after three years, four years of running, and when I hit Harry Smith, which is the middle of the free state, every single year battling with my asthma and having a sore stomach, we went to Dr. Harry Smith who said to me, of course you've your asthma is battling. In fact, he made me do a lung capacity test and he looked at me and said, "You at the moment your lung capacity is smaller than that of a chicken. He said it's, it's 50% of a, what a woman your age and your age should be and that's not an athlete. He said because all the grass, grasses and um, species mm-hmm. that stimulate asthma are out at this time of the year. He had a hospital full of kids. Now, the very funny part is, you know, the, the next question you'll probably ask is about nutrition. I don't eat red meat at all. I very seldom eat white meat. I've given myself that as a, um, I've had to, I've had to eat white meat because I've, I've found long, long distance. It's something I need. I break down if yeah. I don't. So like on the double washing, I know this is going to sound funny, but I'm telling you, Kentucky chicken, KFC got me through. Nothing else. <laughs> so, so I give myself that, but my husband is very much, you've got to eat right, you've got to eat right. And every time I've battled with my breathing, my stomach ulcerates. And he says, yeah, day, it's always day four, day five. And he says, because your nutrition is not right. You're not eating enough protein. You're just eating carbs, blah, blah, blah. So we sat in this doctor's office and he said, no, the reason why your stomach gets so sore is it's a phenomenon called a curling ulcer, which was first discovered after the First World War. Mustard gas um, victims would come in, they would start to recover, and then they would die from internal bleeding. And it's what happens is the trauma on your body for not having enough air causes a certain ulceration in your stomach, which took me four years to find out and from a farm doctor essentially so it was very interesting <laughs> now, on that particular day my husband turned to him and said yeah but isn't it her she's breaking down muscle she's not got enough protein in her diet and this guy looked at my husband and said I've tested her urine her ketones but there's no ketones in her urine everything blood sugar's fine her diet is fine well did I laugh I was like ha 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 
told you so, <laughs> told you so. Because essentially you go, sorry, I know this wasn't the question you asked, but essentially on 10.10, when I finish, I can eat everything and anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, I don't, I nibble while I'm running. I don't have any specific gels or stuff. I drink Coke and water and cool drink and eat Samis and that's it. You know, um, what I feel like I will have, but it's more nibble. But when I finish, I don't hold back because I know the next day is going to, I'm going to need it. Well, it's um, almost like a Tour de France cyclist in a way. You know, yes. You've very much you've got to get those calories back in and also aid the recovery. So then when you wake up in the morning, you can go again. Absolutely. And look, one of the benefits, I think, uh, physiologically is I recover very fast. Um, according to the physio, <laughs> I don't know, but she says that my muscles recover very fast overnight. But anyway, so yeah, from a nutrition perspective, lots of when I finish, I'm not scared of my dairy products or fats because essentially during that period, you are in fat burn zone the whole time. You know, you're not pushing into sugar, you're not pushing anaerobic at all. So, mm-hmm. yes. but anyway, getting back to the preparation, um. You know, but when we first started, I had no idea. There's nobody you can really consult and say, hey, how do I train for 10 comrades in 10 days? So the first year I relied on the fact, I think, that the the previous July I'd done the double washi. So I'd had it in my legs. And also I'd done two other 100 milers the previous year. And then come January, uh, when, like, for example, I mean, in South Africa, every weekend we have the marathon. All over, I mean, in Joburg, we have a marathon every weekend until comrades because that's the, you know, that's the culture. So, like, I would run from my house to the start of the marathon and then run the marathon. So, instead of doing 42, I did like 65 on a a Sunday. And then the day, like, on the Saturday, like, instead of, because most comrades runners, they'll do 10 to 15 every, uh, from Tuesday to Friday. And then Saturday, they'll do slightly longer, like 20, 25 Ks. And then Sunday is the long run. Um, and then Monday rest. So I don't rest. I don't have a day off. Um, I run. I started running about three hours a day because I, I, uh, I don't have one of the fancy Garmin thingies that my husband loves. Um, <laughs> you, you know, because I, it's actually deliberate because he's mm-hmm. like, he loves it, all this technology. And I'm an old school runner. And when I first started running, it was on time. And I remember yeah. an old from my pub saying to me, it's time on the legs. Forget about the distance. Get your time on your legs. And, yeah, so, so I, and also because I'm a bit OCD, I don't want to obsess and run around a parking lot so that my garment. Until technique. you get, yeah. But yeah. Don't you, I find it so funny now that a lot of people and coaches are going back to time-based programs. But that's how it originally was because people had a Casio yep. watch. And once you press stop and clear, the numbers went back to zero. But it, yes. it turned into like a phenomenon where people are going, no, move away from distance and go to time. But it originally almost started as time. Yes, yes. And I think it's, you know what it is? You watch people running with a Garmin. They're forever checking their pace. They don't know how to listen to their bodies. I mean, I know my pace, my average pace. I'll run from years of running with before the Garmin, the era of the Garmin, 
um, we had to know our pace. So I could say, okay, I'm running about five and a half here. I'm running six minutes a K or whatever, you know, and I can still do that. I kind of know my, my pace. Whereas people that run with the watch are saying, oh, I need to run sub five. They're not listening specifically to what the body is saying you are capable of today, you know? And I think that's one of the drawbacks of the Garmin. Um, it's the same work with the heart rate monitor. Um, people get obsessed with that and they that dictates what they do. I mean, one of the classic stories was Nick Bester. The year yeah. he came second on Comrades, he lost his Comrades because he said he was following his heart rate. And his heart rate said, don't go any faster. It doesn't matter if you want to catch the guy, just don't go any faster. So, yeah, it's the that's the whole thing. Look, I go on time, so I, every day I wake up and I run three hours. That's it. And then Saturdays and Sundays, um, look, obviously because of the races, I could have a set distance, but Saturday I run approximately four and a half, five hours. And Sunday I run, when I'm training for 10-10, like by March, I'm running five to six hours on the set on the Sunday. So it's conditioning. It's just conditioning the body to day in, day out run. Um, and then how much time are you giving yourself off after comrades? Because I suppose straight away your plan goes, okay, I want to raise more next year or I want to, you know, I've got to do it again. So when does your head start thinking about getting back into that zone? Um, you know, I love running. So, look, it's from June to December. I don't take it as seriously. Like, I'm not going to go – I mean, from January to June, I, some of my races I push hard because you're either running a qualifier or you're getting fitter and you're feeling good, so you run at a good pace. Um, and for me personally, mentally and physically, the second half of the year, funny enough, is normally when I slow right down and I'll do my 100 milers if I can. Like last year, I mean, sorry, this year, this year, yeah. No, yeah, this year it hasn't happened as well um, because of family issues. My, my father was very ill. So, um, but last year, you know, I do one or 200 milers and just enjoy, work on getting my pleasure out of it and mm -hmm. mentally refreshing because the reality is you go to a race and if you've got to push your body, it's mentally taxing as well because you're having to focus. If you run a 100-miler and you, you're racing it essentially or you're going for time, you are mentally straining. So my second half of the year, I've always said to myself, if I've run 10-10, I must just go and have fun. And there's groups from my club that meet. I mean, they're so funny. They, they meet at the, one of the markets, and they're the coffee runners. They call themselves the beans, like as in coffee beans. <laughs> and they meet. And it's not about pace. It's not about distance. In fact, the shorter they can go, the happier they are. Um, but they truly, literally and figuratively smell the roses. <laughs> so I run about, oh, it's about 13 Ks to their starting point, And then I run with them and I run home. But it's the most pleasurable thing because they are to go and see new places. So we literally have beautiful runs. Like now, Jacaranda time of the year. And we did this tour of Joburg that took, uh, it was 17 Ks that must have taken about two and a half hours because of the stopping and starting. Um, but it was so pleasurable. And then they end at the market, they have coffee, and then they end up sitting there chatting for two hours, and then they will go home. 
and I ran home. So it's that type of thing that rekindles, you know, after 20 odd years of running, you've got to have, I, for me, I have to take a little bit of a mental break from race, 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 race. Um, and your, if we can touch on your, your comrades record is very impressive. Um, <laughs> well, to me, it is. <laughs> so you, you got 17 finishes, correct? And yeah. six bull rounds. Um, oh. which, is that correct, six? I think so. I don't know. I think it is, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other so thing about 10 is that I have never raced comrades. So it was yeah. the perfect race to just go and enjoy after 10-10. If I was a comrades fanatic who was looking for a time difference story, so I go into 10 knowing that this I might not make it to comrades. And for me, it's not such a big deal. I mean, I've bailed comrades before. So, mm-hmm. yeah. How quick then do you think if you did race comrades and that was your sole race, how fast could you go? Uh, um, possibly in my youth, <laughs> I, I could have done a silver, I think, possibly. Now, um, I would think anything under eight and a half would be pretty good. Um, but again, yeah, to focus on that for me would probably would probably result in me actually not getting it because I yeah. line up comrades and I'm not nervous. And the nerves are what take the pleasure away and also mm. what make not run as well. So who knows? Look, I'm not a fast runner, but I will never be one of the top ten ladies. Um, it doesn't matter how hard you train me. I mean, a very a good friend of mine is John Hamlet, who mm-hmm. trains the you know the the top runners of comrades. Um, and it's a discussion I've had with him before, and he said, "No, I'm sure we could get you a sub seven or whatever." And I'm like, "No desire, go away, not interested. Leave me alone. Keep your protein shake. I'm happy." <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, and also, you know, uh, I know it sounds funny, but I don't have a competitive bone in my body when it comes to running, unless you've crossed me. Because if you've crossed me, then, then I'm yeah. going to whip off. But, but I suppose but, that's where it comes back to the start of your running, really, because it's not like you ran at school and then when you were at varsity you were running and then you were like, right, well, I'm going to go to the distance and I want to win events. You really, yeah. it, almost like you started this as like a, a bit of an escape, um, yes. Then you met your husband, and so you never really had that competitive um, element to it. Exactly, exactly. But no, I don't. And you know, if somebody's chasing me, oh my gosh, I'd rather sit down, let them go past, and then I'll catch them. So I'm much better chasing somebody else than somebody chasing me. I feel like a deer in the headlights when somebody's chasing me. And also, I don't want pressure. To give you an idea, the year that I won the Midlands 100 Mile Outright, my brother and my husband, my brother was seconding me as well, only told me literally 10Ks from the end, guess what, you're winning. Because they both knew that if they told me before, I would, the wheels would fall. I'd freak out. You know, like, ah, can't do this. And they knew, don't tell it. But when I get into my zone, like there's been a few times where I, I'm feeling good and I've got a, a point to prove to myself, then then I'll run well. And 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 that's it's about I'm not one of those that I want to win. I want to beat I know this sounds funny, but kind of beat myself, beat 
the the hurdles within me, mm-hmm. um, mental hurdles, if that makes sense. Because so t- just touching on that quickly before you go on, there a lot of people take up running and they say the biggest thing they get is they learned about themselves. So I dare say after all the running you've done, I don't know what more you could learn about yourself. But how do you reset and then get another challenge so then you can kind of almost find out something else about yourself? Um, you know, now it's more um, – it's the therapy of it. It's the mm-hmm. – you know, you, I know that – and I know it's, 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 it's actually a topic of debate because um, now my father, being a, an old school – he, when I first started doing all this distance and loving his daughter, he was freaked out. He, like my first 100 mile, he's like, you're going to get killed by cars. This is it. I hate this stuff. Don't do it. He showed zero pride and, and still does. I know he's proud, don't get me wrong, but to this day, he gets really worried and really angry when I do the long, long stuff, especially with genetic background. So, um. Mm-hmm. Oh, I of thought. Um, so, yeah, he, you know, what was I saying? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just how you reset for the next challenge. So for me, sorry. So one of the debates he ha- we had, and I've also, funny enough, recently had it with the chap who's an alcoholic, is he, they, my dad always used to say, running, you're addicted to it. You're addicted to it. It's like your drug. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've realized, yes, I'm going to own that because it actually is. Mm-hmm. Because it actually is my such a part of who I am that if I miss a day, I'm miserable. Look, when I've been yeah. injured, I, I have learned moderation because from my schooling and everything like that, I'm a little bit, it's all or nothing, unfortunately. I've learned moderation from having children because they come first and also from running injuries. So in an injury, you learn about yourself. You learn what psychologically you are capable of dealing with. Um, if you choose to rest a day or two, you learn about yourself. What demons are you fighting? I know it, it sounds funny, but it's an what what is why am I feeling that I should be out running? Because that's the thing that makes me feel good about me. That shouldn't be the only thing that makes you feel good about you. You see what I'm saying? It, there should yeah. be other things. So, so running is, is in its own sense an obsession, but like everything, every other character flaw, if you can recognize it in yourself, it gives you the ability to deal with it and to make sure it doesn't affect anybody else, your your life journey, your perspective of life. So yeah, every day I would say running is an experience where I gain um, things about myself, the world around me, and things about other people. Um, constantly, there's, I don't ever go and think gain from that. You know, I, um, one of the things that one of the reasons you run, even after 1010, I run every day, and that is my dogs. I've got rescue dogs. I've got a husky who was rescued from one of the townships. He has to run every day. That dog is a flipping maniac. If he doesn't run, my garden, he will dig to Japan. 
In fact, we'll come and see you. That's how bad he is. <laughs> he needs to run. And running with an animal, you know, with a dog, it's amazing because you see the sheer joy with which that animal runs. Um, there's nothing like running it and watching a dog or a little child running. To put us yeah, back in our place. Yeah, so many people you know? run with prams, and I think, God, I find it hard enough pushing myself around. <laughs> How on earth do people push a pram? But it's it's, you're right, though, when you see I the did. child in the pram, the child's loving it. Majority of yeah, the time. Yeah, I, I did that with my first child. I mean, my first child, my first daughter, I ran right, right up until the day she was born. The day I was actually just going to, I don't want to interrupt again, I was just actually going to, this was one of my questions actually, if you don't mind, I suppose, going into this a bit more, but as you, so you mentioned you were running in the advanced stages of pregnancy. Yes, yes, no, I did. I ran through, um, to give you an idea, well, okay, I ran a hundred miler. Everybody had said to me, I'm not, okay, I'm not a big person, but I don't think I'm like seriously small. But all mm-hmm. my running, and especially, and I know this sounds terrible, especially women, were like, you're never going to fall pregnant when you want kids. You run too much. It's an old mm-hmm. wives' tale. I, my husband and I decided that in 2008 we would have a child. So we wanted mm-hmm. a child. So um, July 2006, so the child was supposed to arrive. We had this, I had this all planned in my head. child was mm-hmm. supposed to arrive. End of 2000 and no, sorry, sorry, I'm going too early. That's the previous one. End of 2004. That's mm-hmm. when the child must arrive, according to Hazel's big fan. Ha ha ha. Um. Anyway, so I ran. I went off the pool in ju- beginning of July. I ran the washi hundred mile, and we've put it down to that the week after washi, I fell pregnant. So in other words, I'd been off the pool for three weeks. And mm-hmm. I felt pregnant. <laughs> I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, about nine weeks later, so I was 10 weeks pregnant, I went and ran the Midlands 100 miler. I had no idea I was pregnant. Um, wow. But the whole race, I was throwing up. I felt terrible. I was so nauseous. But Chris was running with me. He was also doing it. And I got to 90 Ks. Nothing stayed down. And I said, listen, I've got a stomach bug. Please just go. I've got 70 Ks. I've got many hours because we've run it fast. Let, mm-hmm. Just leave. Let me hobble, my, drag my sorry ass to the end. And he went off. My brother stayed with me. And about 10 Ks later, I don't know what happened, but those pregnancy hormones kicked in. I promise you, I kicked down. I passed this with 30 Ks to go. And I finished in one of my fastest times. <laughs> Still no idea that I'm actually pregnant. You're pregnant. Wow. Yeah, finished the race, and then the, during that following week, I was actually spending time with my parents, and I was throwing up all the time. My mom, my mom said, "You, when you get back to Derby, you go to the doctor." I went back to the doctor. He says, "Well, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're pregnant. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather." <laughs> and he actually said to me, "Okay, I'm going to send you to Ghani because, and now this is is quite personal, but uh, I hope if somebody gains." They will, they will be worthwhile. But in my family um, is depression. I suffer mm-hmm. from genetic depression, have my whole life. My grandfather committed suicide. Um, my, it's, it's deep in my family, alcoholism, blah, blah, blah. And the running 
definitely helps. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I was sent to the specialist gynae because I was worried about the medication having an effect on the baby. And this gynae said to me, listen, the worst thing you can do for a baby is have a depressed mother because that is going to lead to um, preterm babies and mm-hmm. underweight babies. That's the research. I was very fortunate this guy had actually been researching sportswomen from another very well-known South African sportswoman needing to put, wanting to pull pregnancy, he couldn't. So he really knew. I said to him, listen, um, uh, this is what's happened. Can I carry on running? He said, yeah, go for it. So I did. And I'd go for my checkups and he would check babies, okay? I battled with nausea the whole nine months for both of my girls. I battled. But when I was running, I could eat. That was the interesting thing. I mean, I remember running a 50K with my husband. I was seven months pregnant. There was a car on the side of the road with a chicken burger. And I, I said, please, I, I need that. I want it. And I ate it and carried on running. <laughs> so I must be honest, the first pregnancy really taught me to listen to my body. Um, because I didn't I, – look, I took a lot of flack eh? um, from women mm-hmm. especially. Why, blah, blah, blah. And I was perfectly happy not to run distance. I said to the guy, you tell me to stop and I will. I'm not going to hurt my baby. Um, but he said, no, everything's fine. Um, funny enough, the interesting thing is he encouraged me to carry on because at that stage I wasn't running as much distance as I am now, but I also did aerobics and spinning because I used to teach it. And mm-hmm. he said, do not stop exercise. See, my mom couldn't hold her pregnancies. My brother was 27 weeks. I was 32. And it's to do with the ligaments down there. And Mm -hmm. to keep the baby in, if you've got muscle strength, it will counter that. So he said, no, it will be good for you. It's good for the baby. So I just carried on. And and I really didn't have discomfort. Um, I pushed the boundary, I believe, on the last race I did. Now, the ra- I say race, but it was, you know, it was weekends races. So every two weeks I'd go to the Dhani on Friday, say, I'm okay. It's a yes, go for it. Just don't get too hot or whatever. And mm-hmm. the last race, which was 10 days before she was born, was a 50K. And I thought, oh, wow. this is, yeah, this is pushing it a bit. But it was the anniversary of where my husband and I met. So mm-hmm. I really wanted to do it. And I said, look, let's go do it. I'm going to walk, run. I'm going to be going behind trees every K and a half because my bladder <laughs> was, yeah. you know, really full. And, um, and he, Chris was very unfit, so we trundled along together. It was perfect conditions. And it, interestingly enough, this couple, we thought they were stalking us from a place called Armisfoort, which is in the middle of the sticks in Natal that nobody's heard about. They ran behind us the whole way. And eight Ks from the end, this guy came up and he said, look, I've watched you the whole way. That head is down. That baby is coming. I'm a medical wow. doctor. I service a community of over 100,000 rural black people who come in with the baby breach, the baby um, with a cordra, and I've got to deal with it. So it was very interesting. He said there's three doctors in that community. At, at the clinic, they're all GPs. And if a baby, they haven't seen the woman because that is rural Africa for you until the mm-hmm. day she give birth. And if that baby is breached, they have to turn it. If 
they've got to do everything. And he said, you know, the percent of C-sections in my community is four. You go to the city and it's 95. Um, and he said, what does that tell you? Anyway, we had a long chat and he stuck with us. He said, no, your husband can't deliver, so we'll stay with you till the end. And he, he, was, he was so encouraging. He said, you know, these women work till the day they drop. The baby comes out, they strap it on their back and they carry on because that's how, how we were designed. So it was very encouraging to hear that I did not have a high-risk pregnancy. I, I was, my baby was fine. Um, and then 10 days later, funny enough, on the Saturday, I started getting pain in the back. And I've got an old back injury from catching a piano, which is another story. But my piano was falling and I caught it. <laughs> and I said to my husband, no. I, by that stage, I was running with my phone the whole time. I said, no, mm -hmm. my back is hurting. Please come get me. And that evening, I said, no, gee, oh, this back is sore. And the next morning, my water broke. And four hours later, she was out. <laughs> Wow. So that, yeah, that was the first one. My second daughter was, the pregnancy was harsh. It was terrible. I, um, I didn't run as much. I couldn't. Um, the delivery was horrific. 26 hours of labor, um, but still both natural births. So I was very, very fortunate. Um, but after my first, because I'd done all the comrades training, comrades was like seven weeks later and I ran it. Um, oh, wow. Which was yeah, yeah, that was great. And my husband was with me. I mean, you know, you can do those things if you've got the support of your spouse. Yeah. You can mm -hmm. do it if, if you've got your spouse moaning at you. And I promise so I you come I was going to ask, with your husband, was it very much, did he just say, okay, well, I support you if you are, if you want to do this? Or was he apprehensive and thinking, no, I think you need to have like a year off running? No, he wasn't apprehensive at all because he had spoken to the gynae with me, so mm -hmm. he knew there was risk to the baby. We had agreed that if at any stage um, I felt compromised or the baby felt co was compromised, I would stop. It was not an issue for me. But he comes from a, a Zimbabwe, from Rhodesia. So mm -hmm. he saw people, babies, and carrying on. So for him, it really wasn't, you know, just because you're pregnant, it doesn't mean you're sick. Different story if you've got a high-risk pregnancy. But, I mean, he saw me eating, like, at six months, eating a decent meal, hurling my heart out with all the good nutrients, and then going in. And I know this is sound funny, but my first child, the only thing I could keep down was fudge. <laughs> <laughs> I would eat fudge at night. That's the only thing. But when I ran, I could eat decently. The nausea subsided. So the baby put on weight nicely. She was a good size. I mean, she was, I put on 10 kilos, which isn't a lot, but it was perfect for my size and her size. So there was never, he was 100% supportive the whole time. Um, so with a, with a, what did you have? You had a one-month-old on Comrades Day. Um, how does seven, that go? Oh, sorry. So what was the difference between when the baby was seven weeks, you said? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how does that work in terms of, Geez, the baby's hungry or, you know, the baby's not asleep. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I can tell you, look, I was fortunate. I mean, both my girls I fed for over a year. Um, mm -hmm. I was very lucky. I, I was like a cow, I must be honest. It was disgusting. I had so much milk. And 
Uh, we made arrangements for my mom. My mom, and du- because they live in Durban, to meet me at halfway. So I'd express milk, and then she met me at halfway. And then going up Little Polly's, that's when I said to my hubby, I'm sorry, you're on your own, kiddo. These babies need to be emptied. I need that kid. <laughs> and I got back to the end. My brother lives in Hilton, which is 10 Ks from Marisburg. So they left poor Chris at the end, rushed me up to the baby, and, and that was it. There was there was no, not an issue at all. I mean, I used to, with Monique, my first, she took to the pram beautifully. In fact, mm-hmm. it was probably the time she slept. And then if I needed to stop, I'd find a private spot and feed her. Um, that child, the, one of her first v- words was Bougainvillea, because <laughs> it was called the Villier. Because I used to point out the colours and sing to her, and it was wonderful to have that that sharing with her, um, you know, after she was born. But yeah, because now comrades, look, it was. I mean, you have to make a plan. It's challenging, mm. but I thought I can either sit and feed the baby and maybe go for ten k's, or I can go run comrades. You know, what's yeah. the worst that's going to happen? It, Fortunately, I've got a safety net in the tail, which is my family. The worst that can happen is I get to 30 or 40 Ks, I say, I've had enough of this, phone home, my brother or my dad will be there within 10 minutes. You know, so that, yeah. that definitely helps um, when you've got that. Um, I think that makes – you don't feel like you're risking. And also, I had my phone, so if the baby needed me, they could contact me. Um, because, I mean, it's, I don't have a support system in Johannesburg, so it was me and my, my children and I. And I think, you know, the be- the good thing was Chris realised as well that it made me a far more patient, better mother um, than a lot of other mothers are because I had an outlet. Yeah. I was actually, that leads me into the next question about balance. And I suppose you're both runners. So, you know, a lot of people at the time will say, I'm going for a run to escape or um, during the lunch break, they'll escape. Uh, how have you managed to balance it all? You know, you've got a family, husband, work, the charity. How, have you, yeah, how have you made sure running is still enjoyable um, and then also balance everything around it? Look, it's very difficult. I mean, when when I had my first child, um, look, my stepson was 12 then, so he didn't need as much supervision. But my husband was actually still doing Ironman there. He was still training for Ironman because that was his thing, more than running, just running. So the time away on the bikes, you spend a long time training for Ironman, and it's like seven hours. So we, I would have to wait for him to get back, and then I'd go and run um, over the weekends. Also. When my daughter, well, after four months, um, I was actually lecturing at BITS at the time. They wanted me back full time, and I said, uh-uh, four months, I'm not leaving this baby. Um, she was a small baby, so we demand fed. I had nobody to leave her with. And I think Chris and I were of the age where I knew I wanted to raise my own child. I didn't want to have a nanny raise her, which is the norm in South Africa. You know, you you farm your baby off. A lot of women do. Whether they need to or not is um, is debatable financially. So we looked at it all, and I and that's why I say I'm so blessed because I'm not going to work for the first year. And within 
a month of my resigning, I got an old friend phone me and said, listen, this company needs you to do, I need the design consultant. And I got work that way. And it was, I mean, I literally wasn't without work for a month. And I used, I went in and I said to the chaps, look, I'm happy to do the work. In fact, my philosophy is that in the corporate environment, we spend far too much time obsessed with time in the office, not obsessed with productivity. Because I'm far more productive than a lot of people when I'm working in my home environment, you know. So, uh, I mean, I'll get something done. Whereas in the office, there's too many people talking to you. Things don't get done. So I said to them, look, I'm happy to do it, but I'm doing it at home because I'm still feeding my baby. And if I've got to come to a meeting and she's got to come with and my husband isn't around, then so be it. And I used to take her in, like, do the clients. And I cringe when I think about it now. I used to, my baby and I go into these corporate meetings and I think, oh, my gosh. But it worked. You know, so it worked. And subsequently, um, after my second daughter was born, um, my husband started to work away a lot overseas and in Africa. So I couldn't, um, in all honesty, maintain, we couldn't both maintain full-time jobs because as an engineer, if you're on projects and you're being paid a decent salary, they want your blood. So you're Mm. working 12 hours a day and it would not have been fair of the children for both of their parents to be in that I didn't feel it's a personal thing if I had my mother up here a different story maybe but I didn't have I yeah I wanted to be the one to be there so since my kids um, since my husband started going overseas a lot um, we decided that I would do work that I could do mainly from home contract work comes and goes and I do it um, so, yeah, in that sense, I'm very blessed. And that's why I started off saying the degree I got has enabled me to do that. You know, um, look, if I get three or four good jobs a year, then fortunately I'm not a money spender. I can set, put that aside and then I give extra maths and science lessons to high school kids, which I absolutely love. I lecture for UNISA, which I absolutely love. So. I've got those things that keep a steady income. And then if I get a few projects to you, then I'm okay. You know, and I don't really want for much in life. Materialistic at all. Which my husband just says I'm a cheap wife, basically. <laughs> so in terms of the but sport, Hazel, either. Oh, you got you? Yep, sorry. In terms of the sport well, itself, it, it's going through a massive boom for you guys. Like comrades now just sold out in you know under two yeah. days, and I dare say two oceans will go in even less time. How does does this change your feeling towards the sport, or are you actually are you embracing it and almost happy that you're part of it? Um, a little bit of both, you know. I must be honest. The park runs mm-hmm. have done huge things for South African running. Um, I've one of the reasons I've never really been, I mean, I'm, I love running comrades, but it's not like the be all end all for me, is because of the number of people that run. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great that the sport is grown. It's great for the sport. And let me tell you, as a South African, one of my proudest and 
and most amazing moments has been starting comrades with a multitude of different South Africans. Because as a runner, you're running along and it doesn't matter whether you're running next to a street sweep or a, a high-powered attorney, you are all equal. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter your gender. You are all suffering together. It, there's so much unity amongst the 25,000 South Africans at the start of Comrades. It actually gives you goosebumps and makes you so proudly South African. Um, so from that perspective, the growth that's happened, I embrace it. Um, I do believe, though, that, that like with a race like Comrades, it's actually something that came up recently on Facebook. Um, one needs to respect the that have dedicated the whole existence to it. A lot of novice runners really care. They don't, they don't, they're happy to be running comrades. Talk of your medal, even if you don't fit because you were there. Mm. I say, no way, no. The fact mm. that you change it to 12 hours is a big compromise. You know, it's yeah. still a race. It shouldn't because the Barry Hollands of the world who've run 45 comrades deserve some sort of credit for their dedication. I don't because it's not my dedication point, but I respect the people they're doing. And that's important that, that runners don't, the novices don't lose that respect. People have been out there for a long time. It's important for them because let me tell you, the things I learned about running, I learned from the older runners in my club, we knew what they were talking about. So if any type of message to new, new comrades, runners, or newbies, it would be learn something from the old people because we've got something to offer because we learn from old people, you know. But besides that, having races full is wonderful because it means it keeps the sport alive. I don't want to see races dropping off the calendar. I really don't. Um, I do think... Comrades, it's finance, It's become a bit of a money-making thing, um, mm. but you know, it doesn't it doesn't affect me. Um, so I don't really have a like a, a negative or positive opinion about it. There's certain things that you don't fervently about, I suppose. Like even Comrades I mean, did Soweto on the weekend, and I saw the number had a record number there as well for across all distances. So you know, the fact that you've got a sport like that that's booming, um, yeah, I think you've got to embrace it. And like you said, I hope that, you know, they just keep with traditions where if it's the staggered start of Comrades, I think you just lose everything, the whole essence of it. You know, do you play 10 cock crows because you've got 10 different starts? It's, um, <laughs> I think you're just well and truly compromised. It's very hard. And, and that's the fortune. That's why I say... Don't change your qualifier times. Leave them because that's where you filter people out. And although 25,000 have entered, I can tell you by March next year, only I, I would guess 17,000 will actually be running. They will mm. have qualified. Substitutions will come. People will get their numbers. Um, the older runners who've missed the cutoffs, or I mean who missed this entry cutoff, will get their numbers. Um, because that's the essence of it. There's not not every Tom Dick and his dog can run the qualifiers that Comrade set out. So don't make it easier because 
By doing so, you're setting people up for failure at, on Comrades Day. Mm-hmm. Um, so in too. my, um, normally my last question, which I ask the guests is, if you could give your younger self some advice, what would it be? It would probably be, hmm, good question. Trust yourself. Don't be scared of trying new things. Um, and embrace life because it's very short. Live. Do what you want to do now because tomorrow might not be there. Um, and lastly, remember what you want, what you would envisage on your gravestone, on your tombstone. Do you want to be known as a wealthy individual who ran a business and had 30 BMWs in the garage? Or do you want to be somebody who is known to care and to give back and to help? Um, what do you do? You want to be known as a good engineer? No, thank you. Um, those would be the things I would say. That means nothing in in the big picture of life. Um, do you want to have experiences and memories? Yes. So that would be it, I think. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, I would feel like we could talk for days. Um, but, <laughs> no, I really appreciate um, you sharing a little bit of your story and I know the listeners will well and truly enjoy it um, and I think maybe we're going to have to touch base again and get around two up and going, I think. Well, Owen, I must tell you before I go, something I haven't mentioned is this year is huge, this year coming, because the year is 2020. So guess what we're doing? Oh, I can, you're not doing 20, 2020, Absolutely. are you? Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's the goal. We're going big. We're going big. Oh, geez. And I want to, what I'm trying to do, what the, the idea, the marketing um, guys have come up with is let's incorporate more people. So mm-hmm. to have people, enable people to enter like, a, um, I suppose, a, a, not a race, but an event where they, can from January to June, if they can run 20, 21 Ks, they will get a special T-shirt and acknowledgement and being put in a lucky draw. That way you open up your marketing you know, and you open up the number of pe- uh, the amount of money that you can actually raise and then give people the goal of running 20 park runs in from January to June just to motivate those people that have started running. And it also will be to make it more, uh, you know, accessible to people. So, and then the finale will be, oh my gosh, 20 comments. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm scared, I must be honest. Um, the idea is... Free- well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode with Hazel as much as I enjoyed conducting it. There are some more guests lined up, so keep an eye on your listening platforms for them to appear in your library soon. Happy running. <laughs>